they've developed a robot that is fueled by bodies. Like you could use it on a battlefield and it can consume bodies. Uh, I think it's very understandable. The disillusionment with the way the institutions have been captured or have been corrupted or perverted or whatever it is that's happened to them. The way Yeonmi Park describes North Korea is actually the way North Korea is right now. Yeah. So don't think that that can't happen here. Don't think that can. They're regulating podcasts in Canada. Oh, yeah. yeah. G'day. Welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is the show where we deep dive into the conversations happening right now, and we try to figure out who's talking sense and who is talking nonsense. So today, we have another good episode for you. Heaps of content coming up. I think this is going to be a longer one today, so strap in. We are focusing primarily on Constantine Kissin, as you have undoubtedly inferred from the title. It's not only him, though, that we're going to be covering off. There'll be some unfortunate fellows caught in the crossfire. So the main content that I'll be covering is Constantine Kissin's recent interviews on a couple of shows. So he was on Chris Williamson's Modern Wisdom podcast, and he was also on Joe Rogan's podcast. And so Joe and Chris are also going to get caught in the crossfire here. We've got some analysis of some of what they've said to cover as well. And we're going to be covering some interesting topics as we go. I think we'll be touching on global warming, for instance. We'll be touching on some psychological theories, as espoused by Chris Williamson. And we'll see some of Joe's philosophical ideas and see whether they hold up to scrutiny. So, all right, Constantine Kissin. Why is he the target of the day? Well, he's kind of been popping up on my radar recently. I've been sort of surfing the discourse, as you do, and Constantine pops up every now and then. So it's becoming increasingly clear that he's he's a bit of a figure to watch out for. He's a rising star in the world of the commentariat, the alternative media sphere. And he seems to be one of these heterodox figures. In fact, we'll see in today's episode that that is not too far off the mark, I think. So ultimately, we'll try to get a sense of whether he's somebody worth paying attention to, whether he is a reliable narrator, (laughs) whether he's somebody that can be taken seriously, or whether he's somebody that you should take with a massive grain of salt. So who exactly is Constantine Kissin? Well, he used to be a stand-up comedian, and he's not bad, actually, as a comedian. I did my due diligence and looked up a clip of him on YouTube and found it fairly amusing. It was just a five-minute clip or so. But yeah, he seems to be no slouch in that department, so credit where it's due. But he's given up comedy now, and I think that would be largely owing to the success of his podcast that he started with fellow comedian Francis Foster. So they started this podcast called Trigonometry, I think in like 2018, and it's been kicking off lately. It's been popping, so I think they've accumulated quite a significant audience and you'll notice if you click on their channel that they've been hosting a whole lot of high profile guests you know they get Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein and all the usual suspects onto their show so they've very much thrown themselves into the fray right so as usual I'm going to play a bunch of clips as we go along to give us a feel for Constantine's character and the caliber of his thought I guess caliber of his thinking Um, But I'll give an upfront summary right now, just to give some of my thoughts on him before we kick off. 
and then I'll sort of refer back to these as we go. So we can say right off the bat that he's a fairly savvy operator and hell of a scrappy bastard too. I've seen him get into a couple of arguments with Chris Kavanaugh of Decoding the Guru's fame. And yeah, he, he was uh, full of vigor in those little arguments that they got into. He kind of reminds me of Ben Shapiro a little bit. He has this kind of self-seriousness or like almost humorlessness, which is ironic given that he's a stand-up comedian, but similar to Ben Shapiro with this like, yeah, this very serious demeanor. And like Ben Shapiro, he also has this like sharp, acerbic quality to him, albeit to a lesser degree than Ben, I would say. And he's certainly not as much of a fast talker as Ben Shapiro. Uh, but also, like Ben Shapiro, he's got a kind of right-wing anti-establishment bent to him. But again, in like a milder form. He's sort of Ben Shapiro light in a few ways. So as a result, he kind of, I reckon he gets himself into a bit of a muddle on certain political topics, notably on climate change and on his stance towards the government and, and other institutions, this like broadly anti-institutional stance. I think that tends to get people into trouble conceptually. And so Constantine, I think, is no exception there. So this anti-institutional streak that he's got and, and the way that it kind of deranges his thinking a little bit, or it seems to, I, I claim, I'd say this is one of his major foibles that we're going to be looking at. So I suppose this is one way I can broadly structure the analysis of Constantine here. I can break it down into his general foibles. So the first foible would be the way that his anti-institutional slash heterodox stance kind of deranges his thinking on various topics. And the second foible is this kind of rhetorical shiftiness is what I would call it. So he kind of dances around on various issues. He'll say one thing in a given context and then later contradict himself, kind of depending on what is rhetorically convenient in that moment. We'll see a few examples of that. And I've got a couple of examples of him being what seems to be a little bit disingenuous, as in he kind of presents himself as having a particular ideal or value, but then later violating that. So some couple of minor little examples, but worth including maybe. So let me start by playing some clips in which Constantine makes some declarative statements about himself. So then we'll see whether or not they're honest self-assessments. So first up, here's a clip this is from an interview he did on the Decoding the Gurus podcast in which he kind of gives his political self-identification. The, the way I self-identify as a, is, is a kind of enlightened centrist. I see myself as being somewhere in the center looking at both extremes and going, you're both crazy. Okay, well, that sounds all right on paper, doesn't it? Enlightened centrist, you know, he's just trying to figure out what the, the right view is, irrespective of any political leanings. <laughs> One thing to point out, though, is that the term enlightened centrist, like, I, I certainly wouldn't be tempted to label myself that for a couple of reasons. First of all, just enlightened, like calling yourself enlightened. I don't know. I, I really don't know about that. The second reason is uh, that term enlightened centrist, like the way I perceive that is because the, the only time I've encountered that term is on there's a subreddit called enlightened centrism. And it sort of mocks people who claim to be in the center, who, who claim that sort of both extremes are wrong and that the correct answer is always somewhere in the middle. And so it sort of mocks these people. And I don't know if that term is, has currency 
elsewhere. I couldn't really find much on the internet, but yeah, anyway, it seems to be like a derogatory term that he's applied to himself. But anyway, I think it's clear that he's not quite the centrist that he claims to be. So his podcast, obviously, it's called trigonometry, right? So, you know, it's a very clever play on words there. Trigonometry, you know, trigger, triggering the phenomenon associated with wokeness with the left wing. So the podcast is kind of anti-left wing from the ground up, or at least anti sort of the extremes, the excesses of the left wing as he sees it. And so obviously you're going to tend to attract more of a right wing audience. And so this renders you vulnerable to audience capture, especially if you are keenly focused on the metrics, on the performance of your podcast, on growing your audience. If you're sensitive to that, then you're going to tend to talk about things and host guests that are amenable to your audience. And so this might be a bit of a problem for Constantine in terms of pushing him towards the right wing and ensuring that he doesn't give a fair shake maybe to certain left wing views. Now, he has stridently claimed to not be beholden to this kind of audience capture. And again, you know, we heard him talk about how he's a centrist. But I think this is belied by a couple of things. For one thing, just the guests that they tend to host on the Trigonometry podcast tend to be more right-leaning. And the ideas that Constantine himself expresses, I think, betray the fact that he's fairly ensconced in the right wing, particularly the faction of the right wing that is sort of heterodox and anti-institution to the extent that that is a right wing phenomenon. And I guess there's a good case to be made that it is. But we can get a little bit empirical about it. So if you go onto the Trigonometry YouTube page and just kind of scroll down and see the titles and the thumbnails, you'll see that there is a distinct leaning towards a particular side of the political spectrum so, all right, let's let's actually move on to some of his views as expressed on the podcasts that I'm going to be covering today. And so we can ask ourselves, is he truly an enlightened political commentator or is he just a bog standard, rightward tilted kind of anti-establishment figure? So this is one way of framing the foray that we're going to embark on here. So, okay, let's start with his views on institutions. So this is a clip from the podcast he did with Chris Williamson recently, uh, in which Chris starts by pointing out essentially how being knee-jerk anti-establishment is just as lazy as sort of knee-jerk following the mainstream narrative. So does Constantine agree with this? But yeah, reflexive contrarianism is no more nuanced than a reflexive mm. belief of the hegemony. Yes. Uh, and... Um... I, you know, I don't judge people for that because I, I think it, it, that's an element of my thinking, you know, a kind of, uh, I think it's very understandable, the disillusionment with the way the institutions have been captured or have been corrupted or perverted or what, whatever it is that's happened to them. Um, it is natural that that would produce an equal and opposite reaction. Um, I encourage myself and other people to go beyond that. So there he is being pretty explicit in his anti-institutional views there. I love how he's, <laughs> the, the clarity and like precision of his uh, analysis there, that they've that been corrupted or perverted or captured. It's a good question though, which is it? Have they been corrupted? Have they been captured? 
Or is it, is it the case that they've merely been perverted? Not sure. This is one of the most pressing questions of our day, though. Perverted or captured? And is it all of our institutions, Constantine? What do you reckon? Is it the government agencies? Is it the media? Is it the scientific establishment? So we'll go through some clips now to see what he has to say about some of these specific institutions. So first up, here's a clip from a speech that Constantine gave, which he released on his YouTube channel a couple of days ago. And he's going to take a pretty dim view of the mainstream media here. So listen to this. And to my colleagues in new media especially, I say this. The legacy media is dying for a reason. They cannot be saved. They cannot be reformed. Let's stop complaining about them and start building the media empires of the future ourselves. Wow. Strong words indeed. Eh? So it cannot be reformed. The mainstream media's gone too far. It's time for them to step aside and make way for the new media companies. Uh, incidentally, Constantine happens to be in the process of building his own media company in the UK. So I wonder if that might have anything to do with his take here. But anyway, remember I said that one of Constantine's foibles that I've noticed is this kind of rhetorical shiftiness. So to give a little bit of an indication of what I mean here, I'll play some more clips. These are from the Chris Williamson podcast. And so he's going to talk about the mainstream media here. And it's not clear that he's saying in these clips that the mainstream media is unreformable. So it might just have been a, a bit of a moment of rhetorical vigor that he was uh, impelled to make that call in his speech. So anyway, listen to this. I, I see a lot of problems with new media too. I mean, and I've said this from day one in, in terms of what we do at Trigonometry. It's uh, We don't have a budget to employ a bunch of people to do extensive research on things or to do fact checking for us. So we can't do certain things that the mainstream media can do and should do. The problem is the mainstream media isn't doing it either, mm. right? Uh, but there's a there's a really important role for the mainstream media. I just wish they'd play that role. Okay, so a slightly different perspective there. He's talking about how there is an important role for the mainstream media. He just wishes they would play it. Okay, so that's a different stance to saying that they are categorically unreformable. <laughs> Okay, but he's a fan of research and fact-checking, and he acknowledges that the mainstream media can do this, right? So presumably he's aware of the fact that a lot of mainstream media companies do do this. Like, of course they do research, and there are some that have, like, explicit fact-checking teams. So he's aware that this is a real phenomenon going on, but then he says in the same breath that they don't do it. So a little confused as to what his actual thoughts on the matter are. I, I tend to think that maybe, and this is just me being cynical perhaps, maybe he just wants to say negative things about the mainstream media and to treat them as a monolith which is uniformly bad and which should be assiduously avoided. But again, he won't say that all the time, only when it's rhetorically convenient. So in the context of this conversation with Chris, he's being a little bit more nuanced. And so this next clip illustrates further the fact that he doesn't really think that the media is unreformable, at least not in this moment. So listen to this clip. Chris is going to ask him what the mainstream media can do to regain the trust of the public. So if he is consistent in his views, if he's not just shifting around rhetorically, then we would expect him here also to put his foot down and say, well, there's nothing that can be done. So let's see what he has to say. We need 
a, a media ecosystem that's trusted. We do need politicians who can be trusted. Uh, I'm not happy with the status quo that we've got at the moment where we trust no one and with good reason. But the solution to that isn't to trust the mainstream. The solution is for the mainstream to become trustworthy. Yeah. Um, do you think that's even possible? I think it's very difficult in a modern environment. It's very, very difficult because um, I just see that us, we're running a small media organization, just, just you are too, right? It's like, do you get everything right? Do you, is your research always on point? You know, so it's very, very difficult. Okay, so he's asked directly there what the mainstream media would need to do to become trustworthy. And his response seems to be that, well, it's just difficult for them to get the facts right because we know from experience that it's just intrinsically tough. So presumably the mainstream media also faces the same challenges and that's the hurdle for them. But this response is strange for a couple of reasons. First of all, because as he's already acknowledged, the mainstream media does have more resources than some independent podcast like his own. So they can do the fact-checking, they can do the research, and thereby overcome the problem that he's talking about. So I think this is actually quite revealing about Constantine's kind of mode of operation here. So he's really given us a confused jumble of ideas. The logic is all kind of tangled. He doesn't really know what he's saying in a given moment. He's contradicting himself. So let's just take stock of what he's said. He said, on the one hand, that the mainstream media can do research and fact-checking because they have the resources, but that they just don't utilize those resources to do that, though he didn't elaborate on why. And then he said that here that the reason that they're struggling with trust is because it's just hard to get the stories right. So here he seems to be saying that you know even if they're earnestly making an attempt to get at the truth, they're just failing to get it right. But that seems inconsistent. And then it Elsewhere, he said that they're unreformable completely. Like, it's just such a jumble of ideas. It's just such a gnarled, tangled knot of logic. And it's just obvious what's going on here, I think. Which is that, on the one hand, he's just wanting to cynically bash the mainstream media because that is a congenial position to take for him and his situation for a number of reasons. But the problem for Constantine is, I think, that on the other hand, you actually can't really make a compelling and cogent case against the mainstream media that doesn't also veer into conspiratorial thinking and which avoids painting even the alternative media sphere with the same brush. So what I mean by that is that in order to indict the entirety of the mainstream media, what you need to do is you need some kind of sweeping explanation that accounts for why all of them are bad and unreformable, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it's, it's not really a monolithic thing. It's comprised of a whole lot of different companies on different sides of the political spectrum with different audiences and different funding so sources. So you have to put all that complexity aside and, and have some kind of explanation for why they're all bad. And in order to do that, you're either going to need to say that there's some conspiracy at play, you know, they're all on the take, they're all paid off by Big Pharma or whoever it is, and Constantine doesn't want to take that route. So the other alternative is to cite some kind of intrinsic incentives that apply to all media companies and that account for why they're all rotten. 
So an example is that maybe they're all trying to maximize clicks and so truth takes a back seat. But those same incentives are also going to apply to the new media companies such as his own. And so he's not going to be able to do that either. So I think the difficulty is that Constantine wants to bash the entirety of the mainstream media. But in order to denigrate and delegitimize the whole thing, you necessarily need to paint everything with a broad brush. So you need some sweeping theory. But it's just not possible to come up with a sweeping theory that isn't conspiratorial and that doesn't also apply to the new media as well. So that's the predicament that Constantine is in here. He needs to bash the mainstream media, but he can't do so cogently. And so you end up with just this hodgepodge of confused ideas which are inconsistently deployed depending on what Constantine can make work in a given context. Okay, so let's move on to his views on another institution, the government. Okay, so according to Constantine in this podcast with Chris Williamson, oh, sorry, no, this is from a different podcast. This is from Constantine. I sort of went ranging a little bit to to try to get my arms around his views. Um, So this is from some cryptocurrency-based podcast that he did. And here he's going to talk about how the government has become authoritarian And presumably he's talking specifically about the UK government, but I guess more generally he's referring to Western governments. So here's this clip. And that is where we are, uh, exactly where we are. I think this is one of my big worries about just the way we're going. And I do think partly it's technological. Like the government can be up in your business now because we've got the technology for them to to be in it. But the other thing is, you know, it enables people who want to meddle in your life to meddle in your life. And you see it everywhere. You know, oh, you said this thing not quite the way that I would have said, okay, let's get rid of it. Oh, you you do banking in the way that we don't, okay, let's get rid of it. It's, it's, it's becoming, you know, we're becoming a, quite an authoritarian society yeah. in terms of, and, and when I say authoritarian, people sort of think, you know, I'm saying like we've got Vladimir Putin and putting people in prison. And that's not what I mean. It's just like the amount of freedom you as an individual have over your life is increasingly being constrained. You can no longer say exactly what you think. You can't do exactly what you think. So again, we've got really another jumble of low resolution ideas here that Constantine's giving. He's sort of painting a picture of an oppressive authoritarian government, but he's not really backing it up with good examples of why that is the case, why they are authoritarian. I don't doubt, though, that if you pressed him for clarification on what he means, I think he'd retreat to some more defensible claims. But the takeaway here is that, and this is pretty typical, I think, that he he so often resorts to this kind of lazy anti-establishment rhetoric, which makes these sweeping general claims. And it really does nothing to enlighten you or give you a sense of what's really going on. But it seems to me that all it really does is like reaffirm the worldviews of a kind of lazily anti-establishment audience that he might be pandering to. But maybe I'm being unfair because he does actually go on to give a specific example of the kind of authoritarianism he means. So check this out. You know, and COVID was just such a, a good example of this. I remember Francis and I were walking around uh, and we went to Borough Market in London yeah. uh, during one of these periods where you could be outside during lockdown. And we were standing there chatting and then a friend of ours came up that we hadn't seen and we were talking 
And then immediately out of nowhere, this guy in a high-vis jacket pops up and he's like, sorry, no talking. What? Yeah. And it's just like... Did the you tell him to fuck off? <laughs> pretty much. I mean, the, 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 the sort of, like, the, the jobs worths are in charge now. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, totally. And it, it, it does my head in. It's so frustrating. Like, I, I think we need the government to be involved and to sort problems out, and there are certain things that aren't going to be taken care of by the market, and you need a safety net and all mm -hmm. of that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with all of that. I do not want some government bureaucrat or apparatchik telling me what I can and can't put in my body, what I can, can and can't say, what I can and can't think. Okay, but was there really a government policy of like no talking if you're outside in, in the streets of England or wherever he was at the time? Or was this just a case of some busy bastard getting up in their grill? Because the whole argument really hinges on that. Like, was this a government mandated thing? And even then, even if it was, you'd still need to put that into context, right, to assess whether it really is something that qualifies as authoritarian, okay, or tyrannical. And again, I know he doesn't mean actual authoritarianism, he says, but, you know, this is the picture that he's painting. And I feel like the more detail we try to add to the picture and the more context we provide, the less it's going to actually seem like you can sustain that view of the government as this authoritarian tyrant. Okay, so continuing with this sort of anti-establishment heterodox theme, what are Constantine's views on global warming? So I'll play a few clips from him on Chris Williamson's podcast where he's going to lay out his views or some of his views. Again, it's a bit of a confusing hodgepodge. But essentially from listening to this and other clips on different podcasts, it has become increasingly clear that his view is basically just inherited wholesale from the sky Bjorn Lomberg. So Bjorn is a kind of notorious climate contrarian. He's not your kind of typical climate skeptic who denies that global warming is happening or denies that it's human caused. Lomberg's view is a little bit more sophisticated. So in a nutshell, the Lomberg view is basically this. Global warming, yes, it's going to have some detrimental impacts, but it's also going to have some positive impacts. So for instance, it's going to mean that fewer people are killed by cold weather. So really what we need to consider is the kind of net outcome of global warming. We, we weigh up the positives, the negatives. What's the net effect going to be? And then on the other hand, the governments are kind of seemingly implementing fairly drastic policy action now. And this is going to have severe negative consequences for the economy, for instance. And this is going to have a material impact on people's lives right now. So what we need to do is kind of weigh the net consequences of global warming against the consequences of drastic policy action. And, you know, that's fair enough. That general framing is fine. But where Lomberg goes wrong is in cherry picking and using half-truths to assert a few things. So he tries to make the case that the effects of global warming aren't all that bad and he will exaggerate the detrimental effects of the proposed policies that are used to combat global warming. So he's got his finger on the scale basically in his analyses in which he tries to paint the picture that climate change, global warming isn't actually that bad. The drastic policies that are being suggested and implemented are a lot worse. So that's that's the gist of it. And Constantine basically just parrots these views. So I'm just going to play a few clips of Constantine basically echoing the Lomberg view, some specific arguments. Well, there is a lot of fuckery going on. What's interesting is there's no... I find the climate issue absolutely fascinating. 
it's genuinely fascinating to me because the the historical ignorance on that issue that is being deliberately spread is is like mind blowing to me. Do you know the Romans when they occupied Britain, they grew grapes on Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall, for people listening, is what used to protect what is now England from what is now Scotland, right? One of the northernmost points on the British Isles. Uh, now, if you don't know Scotland, average weather in Scotland in, in August is like 18 degrees in rain at best, right? So what we are being told about that issue is absolutely mind-blowingly, incredibly unhelpful and inaccurate. Okay, and here's another one. Uh, after my Oxford speech went viral, I, I had a lot of invitations to go and speak to different people. And I, I was talking to this guy who works for the Indian government at a high level. And he told me when, when India became independent in 1947, average life expectancy was 37 years old in India. And today it's, I think, 82. Actually, he's got that figure quite wrong. It's actually 70, just over 70 years is the current life expectancy. Minor quibble. But anyway, moving on. And that's because they burn fossil fuels. Now, are we saying to a billion plus Indian people, they're not allowed to do that anymore? No, I don't think anyone is going to say that they can't do that anymore. I don't think, is anyone saying that? I don't think so. I mean, certainly that's not even happening in developed nations, right? Like it's nobody's prohibiting fossil fuels. It's like there's, I think what's going on is there, there's a more careful and judicious effort to kind of gradually phase out the use of fossil fuels and to bring in renewables and this kind of thing. So yeah, no, I don't think people are just going to ban fossil fuels in India and consign them to poverty and, and misery. And I also think human beings love a doomsday narrative. And a portion of the sort of side that I've been arguing on, which is this anti-woke side, is like the barbarians at the gates. Now, I genuinely think that's true. I think we are undermining the, the founding pillars of our civilization. But it, there is an appeal to that worldview. Uh, and if you look back, neither of us are old enough, but in the 1970s, the planet was cooling and everybody was terrified of global cooling. Yeah, the global cooling idea, the, the idea that we were once panicked about that is definitely a, a massive misrepresentation. And this is like a, a canard of the kind of climate skeptics of today. So I've looked into this before and there was a paper that documented or catalogued all of the the climate science papers from the 1970s or around that era that they're talking about just to try to get a picture of what the scientific view was at the time. And even then, the vast majority of papers were about global warming. There was some question about whether global cooling was an issue. I think it was something to do with the particulates from pollution were potentially going to blot out the sun, and so the globe was going to cool. But this was not a big scare. You know, there's some newspaper articles you can find about it, but it wasn't a widespread thing, and there certainly wasn't a scientific consensus on the matter. And it was still the case at the time that global warming was the central concern of climate scientists. So this claim is misleading at best. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. The things that are being suggested that we do don't make any sense. The way we're approaching it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's incredible to me the way this conversation is being had. So it doesn't make logical sense, right? If you believe that the costs of action really do outweigh the benefits and you really do believe that global warming's effects aren't all that bad, then yeah, the, the response doesn't make sense. 
The thing is, though, this really comes down to fairly complex and technical analyses of, for instance, using models to project the expected consequences of global warming and cost-benefit analyses to specify the right policy settings. And I'll freely acknowledge that I totally lack the expertise and knowledge to carry this out for myself. So what you need to do instead, if you want to make sense of the situation, is to defer to experts. And Constantine, of course, is deferring to his expert, which is Bjorn Lomberg, and his ilk. Personally, I feel much more confident backing the kind of mainstream consensus here, the, the institutional consensus that has arisen through the consensus of climate scientists and careful analysis by the relevant experts in collaboration with each other internationally. So, you know, authorities like the International Panel on Climate Change which is a UN organization, I think, uh, or like NASA, all of whom are aligned more or less on the issue and who are assessing the intricacies of the situation and providing policy recommendations. And the beauty of going with the mainstream consensus here is that you don't need to be baffled like Constantine is about just what's going on and why everybody's getting it wrong because, well, they're not getting it wrong. You are. So whereas he's completely bewildered by the situation, all I need to do is explain how it is that somebody like Bjorn Lomberg has gotten things wrong, which is not difficult to explain. You can simply appeal to things like confirmation bias and the fact that he's staked his reputation on this particular view and so has a significant incentive to find a particular result. Much harder to tell that story about institutions, right, and, and networks of scientists working in collaboration and so on. So it's a much more epistemically plausible and conservative view, I think, to take the general view of trusting the mainstream here. And it also means that I don't have to engage in harebrained speculation about why they are all getting it wrong, which is what Constantine does in these clips that I'll play for you now. And I would love to know what's going on with that shit. I would love to know. Because, you got any theories? Um, well, one thing that's interested me a lot is obviously people are familiar with the concept of groupthink. But there's another thing, which is um, the, the Abilene paradox. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's basically the idea that people will often do things because they think other people want them done. Um, and you combine that with mass panic, indoctrinating kids into being terrified, etc. Okay, so Constantine is proposing the so-called Abilene paradox, also known as the spiral of silence, to explain how everyone is getting global warming wrong. So this phenomenon applies to situations in which people pay some kind of price for speaking their true feelings, their true beliefs. So for instance, I've heard this idea proposed as a partial explanation for why it was that the German public seemed to acquiesce or like go along with the Nazi regime. The idea was that speaking out against the regime would promptly get you denounced, so nobody was speaking out, and therefore nobody really knew what everyone else was thinking, and that made it impossible for any kind of resistance to form. So could this idea be applied to the climate change situation? Well, I don't think so, for a number of reasons. So 
think about what he's actually saying here. So the idea is that most people actually do subscribe to the Bjorn Lomberg view, but just don't tend to voice that fact because they assume that nobody else thinks that way, which is obviously ridiculous because the Bjorn view is not like more obvious or more intuitive than the other view. So how have people arrived at that view in the first place? And how is it that they've all arrived there without knowing that everybody else thinks the same way? It's just an outrageously stupid idea that's obviously wrong. And even if you can somehow apply this idea to your average Joe, it certainly does not apply to mainstream institutions. And that's really what he needs to explain. Like, how is it that these networks of experts across the globe are all getting it wrong as a result of this spiral of silence phenomenon? Incredibly dumb. Anyway, let's see one more clip from Constantine on this issue. So this one's actually from the Joe Rogan podcast that he did. Right. Well, so in the UK, we have this obsession about net zero. And I'm like, okay, let's get our emissions down to zero. Let's say Britain produces no carbon emissions mm -hmm. at all. And the ones that we outsource abroad, that's 2% of global carbon emissions. You just fucked our country to make no difference whatsoever to the problem. Okay, and I've heard him make this argument elsewhere. And in fact, I've heard this argument myself plenty in my own country, New Zealand. We're a small country and we have climate policies and people complain about the fact that we're not going to make any kind of difference. The thing is, this is collective action though, right? Like we're making it, it's not just, so we talk about Britain's 2%. You know, combine that with the 2% from 10 other countries, right? And suddenly we're not talking about trivial numbers we're talking about having an actual impact so the reality here is that this involves collective action collective agreements and commitments from all of the participating countries this is why we have something like the paris climate agreement in which all of the countries sort of pledge to reduce their emissions because it's something that needs to be done collectively obviously so this narrow-minded kind of blinkered view in which you just take the perspective of a single country and and say well that's not going to have an impact it's just kind of irrelevant to the actual the reality of the situation which is that we do have these collective agreements and collective commitments so yeah i really just think this speaks to constantine's bias here because this is not a difficult point to grasp and the only uh, the only reason that somebody like constantine who who does have a brain would think the way he's thinking is because he's got an obvious bias, right? Okay, so moving on. So we've already seen a couple of defects or foibles that Constantine has exhibited. We've seen that he is wedded to a heterodox view of the world and that this leads him to engage in some pretty shoddy reasoning. And we've also seen that he's a little bit rhetorically shifty so he jumped around on his stance towards the mainstream media depending on what suited his current purposes and now we're just going to see a little bit more not exactly shiftiness but a little bit of disingenuousness to be fair these are some pretty minor examples nothing too egregious but I thought them worth including if only because they're slightly amusing so here he is on this is actually from a different podcast altogether this is him on a podcast called impact theory and he's talking about the podcast that he recently uploaded on trigonometry uh, featuring eric weinstein and sam harris in which they talk about the palestine situation um how did that conversation go it was awesome uh, we talked about israel and palestine for about two hours uh and then we did a did they have uh different yes views on it 
They did. They did. Yeah. And one of the things that we were keen on is that while, look, from a content creation perspective, disagreement is always helpful. Yeah. That isn't, we didn't set it up as a debate. Navigate it well. Yeah. We didn't set it up as a debate. We didn't market it as a debate. That's not how it's presented. Okay. So he reckons they, they didn't set it up as a debate. They didn't market it as a debate. That's not how it was presented. I don't know though. If you look at the if you look at the thumbnail and you look at the title of the video, the title is Sam Harris x Eric Weinstein Israel Palestine. Okay, it doesn't say verse Sam Harris verse Eric Weinstein. To be fair, that maybe that's what he means. But then the thumbnail is like Sam and Eric's face, like sort of on uh, Sam's on the left, Eric's on the right. They're kind of facing each other. Sam's got this like defiant look on his face. It kind of looks a little bit like you you were presenting it as a debate, but maybe not. I'm I'm being I'm being nitpicky. Okay, that's that's not fair. Okay, so we'll move on to another example of him being what seems to be a little bit disingenuous. So this is going back to a clip from the Chris Williamson podcast. So for context, Sam Harris once appeared on Constantine's podcast, or I think maybe on the Trigonometry podcast. And he, there was a clip taken from this that went viral in which Sam Harris sort of said something controversial and he got roundly abused for this on Twitter and elsewhere on social media. So this is a clip of Constantine saying just how bad he felt about what happened to Sam there. One of the things that Sam brought up on the episode with me was his infamous Twitter clip with you. Mm. What was the experience of that particular 180 seconds catching fire like you know i felt terrible when that happened really really terrible because i've never been on the end of a twitter shitstorm to that extent but it it's not pleasant no matter how strong-minded you are whatever there's a reason that rogan always says don't read the comments right like there's only certain number of negative comments you can ignore until just the volume of shit becomes overwhelming so my primary concern actually not i don't know sam well but uh was for his well-being actually i just i just worried how he would experience that more than anything so i was worried about him and I emailed him straight away just to you know check up on him and and you know also we didn't put that clip out we could have done because we obviously understood that it was a controversial thing he said okay so he felt really bad for Sam and he assures us that he didn't put that clip out although if you go onto the YouTube channel though there's a video that says that's titled Sam Harris interview that broke the internet so it kind of looks like he is using it to promote his podcast but also listen to this. So despite how concerned he was for Sam getting all this flack, now he's going to talk about how that wasn't actually the most controversial thing that Sam said in that interview. We didn't put that clip out. We could have done because we obviously understood that it was a controversial thing he said. And actually, uh, most people don't know this, but that was not the most controversial thing he said in that interview, in my opinion. We talked about COVID on Locals, which was the paywall section of the interview. And what he said there, I found quite... What did he say? I don't remember the wording and people have to go and watch it, but it was, you know, I came away from that thinking that, you know, he's overestimating the threat and as a result of that is prepared to do some pretty drastic things. Okay, so on the one hand, oh, I feel really, really terrible for Sam. I'm so sorry that happened. Uh, You know, I'm not going to put that clip out. And then on the other hand, but actually he said something worse than that, guys. And if you want to know what he said, then you have to pay for the premium podcast or whatever. (laughs) It's behind a paywall. So yeah, I don't know, bit of a contradiction. 
is it not? Okay, so moving through the rest of the episode Constantine did with Chris Williamson, I'll just play a few more bonus clips and then we'll move on to Chris Williamson himself. So in this clip, Constantine is going to give an example of what he calls trade-off denialism, which is something that you'll hear him talk about ad nauseum if you listen to his recent stuff. So it's basically the idea that people don't tend to appreciate or even accept the existence of trade-offs for a particular view that they hold. So you might have somebody who is an advocate of free speech, and this person won't realize that there are trade-offs that come with having untrammeled free speech. So the context here, he's talking about being on a, a British show called Question Time, and this is where sort of a bunch of guests gather around and get interviewed on political questions I think and he talks about how there was a you know there's a warm-up question beforehand that that's not aired and the question they asked was something about whether Trump should be banned from Facebook. I don't think I've told this story publicly but last time I did question time uh, question time is this big discussion political pro discussion program here in, in the UK uh, before they do their show they do a warm-up question that's not recorded and it's not released. And the conversation at that time was Donald Trump had just been unbanned on Facebook and whether that was okay. And they went to me first and I was like, look, not that I'm his biggest fan, but I do think the former or sitting president of the United States should be able to speak in public. Yeah, I do. Controversial as that is. And then they went around the table and whatever. And then they went to the labor woman who was there. Very nice woman. And she, without batting an eyelid when I think we should have the safest internet in the world and, and I went, what safer than North Korea right this is com coming back to this point about trade-off denialism like they think safety doesn't have a price and the other argument is freedom doesn't have a price and the truth is they both have a price and what we're trying to find is the right point in the middle between those two Okay, so I just want to point out a little bit of hypocrisy there in what he said. So he's accusing this woman of being a total dullard and failing to appreciate trade-offs uh, based on one line that she said, I think we should have the safest internet in the world. Like maybe he's reading too far into that line. I wouldn't be surprised if the woman would agree that there is this trade-off and yet she still thinks that we should put an emphasis on safety. Like maybe there's a more nuanced position lying behind that claim. But all right, fair enough. Let's let's just assume she doesn't appreciate the possibility of trade-offs there. Well, what about his own answer to the question? He was kind of scornful of the idea that we might not give a platform to a president of the United States. He, he kind of made out like that was completely and utterly obvious, like a trivial point. Why are we even? Why is it even a question? which kind of betrays his own lack of appreciation of trade-offs there. Because, of course, there are going to be some situations in which the president ought to be kicked off platforms, for instance, if they were inciting violence. And so there is a discussion to be had there, whether or not you agree with Twitter and Facebook and these tech companies kicking Trump off their platform Certainly, you have to agree that there is at least an argument to contend with for why it might have been a good idea to kick him off. But Constantine seems to be denying that possibility, like one of his trade-off denialists, perhaps. Okay, so just a couple more clips from Constantine before we move on, and then we'll cover a bit of Chris Williamson. Okay, so... Here he is showing some of his epistemic rigor. So Chris is going to speculate that since COVID 
Uh, vaccine skepticism has gone through the roof. And we'll see what Constantine has to say in response. Vaccine skepticism at large, I bet, has gone through the fucking roof. It has. It has. Have you had a look at this? Yeah, of course it has. I know anecdotally, just speaking to people, how much that's that, that's the case. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so he he knows for a fact, just from talking to people, that vaccine hesitancy has gone through the roof. Good to know that that's how he judges these kind of things. Me, I probably would have thought I needed to go to some polling data or something to get a sense of that. And so it turns out that, in fact, some polling has been done. And I'm just going to quote from a CNN article, which is referencing Pew Research, reliable kind of polling research center. And they say that nearly 9 out of 10 adults in the US say that the benefits of measles, mumps and rubella vaccines outweigh the risk, a share that's remained unchanged since before the COVID-19 pandemic, according to data published Tuesday by the Pew Research Center. Okay, so doesn't really jibe with Constantine and Chris's conjecture there. Uh, maybe that will turn out to be wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with the polling there, or maybe over time vaccine skepticism has increased but that just wasn't reflected in that poll. But in any case, I think Constantine needs to brush up on his epistemic practices a little bit so that he's not relying on anecdotes and just like people that he's talked to to get a sense of the general sentiment across society. Okay, so another clip from him here. This is a point that I've heard him bring up a couple of times about the internet age and how that has deranged our thinking. And so he uses this metaphor here. Look, I think we, we're living in a, this is a metaphor that is overused, but it's a sort of the invention of the printing press kind of situation. That, I mean, that caused two centuries of religious war. So I think what, ha what the social media in particular and the internet more broadly has done, it is has broken our ability to make sense of the world. Okay, so again, this is a, a pretty minor little quibble that I've got, but uh, I just wanted to examine this view because he's put it forward a couple of times and also it gives a, an opportunity to talk about something kind of interesting so he's saying that the internet is like the invention of the printing press and on this metaphor the printing press led to centuries of religious war so the, the idea is that it caused centuries of religious war now what Constantine is referring to here I think is the well, at the time of the invention of the printing press, this is when Protestantism started to kick off across Europe. And supposedly the spread of these ideas were facilitated by the printing press. And I think that's true. I think that's generally accepted to be the case. And so it did help to kind of catalyze this, the movement. And, and there was a whole lot of uh, warfare in the wake of this. But... I think it's a weird claim to make that the printing press is this significant cause of war. Because for one thing, we just consider the previous few centuries, consider the previous like millennia, there'd been rampant religious war. So, you know, this is not a new thing. So I think it's not very clear that the printing press was the key causal factor here. And it's certainly not what I would think of as the main legacy of the printing press that it, that it led to warfare also what constantine's analogy kind of implies here is that the cause of violence and conflict is the rapid propagation of information through society because that was the role that the printing press was supposed to have played in the religious wars after its invention but i think most people who would 
indict the internet as the cause of modern-day conflicts would not say that the reason for that is because of how it allows the rapid propagation of information, although, of course, that's a sort of prerequisite. But rather than talk about the information siloing and the the fact that certain messages are amplified on social media and this kind of thing. So really things that are unique to the internet. Okay, so that's Constantine done and dusted. Um, now we'll move on to Chris Williamson. All right, so I did kind of glancingly cover him in the episode I did on Eric Weinstein, but he didn't really offer me much to assess there, so I didn't really have too much to say about him. But by now I've seen, I've listened to a few of his podcasts, so I can make a few general observations now. Critical observations, obviously, because when, when I'm listening to these podcasts for the purposes of making content, I'm like in a pretty hypercritical frame of mind. I'm sort of being a bit of a, a curmudgeon as I listen. So uh, yes, I've picked up on a few things that are perhaps worthy of criticism, but at the same time, you know, Chris has a lot of positive qualities i guess to offer you know listen to him for yourself if you want a balanced perspective i'm just really here in my capacity as a kind of policeman of epistemology so i'll be a bit harsher perhaps than is warranted so two things that i've picked up on i think two two major things so the first is that he prolifically regurgitates slick sounding ideas and like frameworks that he's picked up from his guests or that he's picked up from his readings or whatever and to his credit i'll say this this is a positive thing he he does seem to have a prodigious memory for like quotes and for the names of theories and the people who originated them like that is an enviable skill he's he's definitely knowledgeable with this kind of stuff less enviable though is apparently how uncritically he absorbs a lot of these ideas and then just parrots them so we'll go through some examples what they'll kind of show is that he's picked up some idea which is on reflection on some fairly basic reflection too the, the ideas don't really stand up to scrutiny so i think he ought to be more selective about the ideas that he takes on board so okay some examples in this first clip uh, he's talking about what makes you attractive to the opposite sex and his guest mentions the idea that people are attracted to passion. And this reminds him of a quote from a book he's read. There's a, a line from Artificial Intelligence to Zombies, uh, Rationality from A to Z uh, by Eliezer Yukowski. And he writes this book about rationality, which is cognitive biases and the ways that our thinking goes awry and stuff. And at the start of it, he says, people take the piss out of rationalists, not because being in love with rationality is strange but because it's so love it's so rare to love anything in the modern world okay so people take the piss out of rationalists because these people just love rationalism so much and that's apparently something worthy of mockery uh that's the claim and i think it's total bullshit so first of all we don't even need to get into what the rationalist group actually is for you to know that this point is bullshit just ask yourself do people really make fun of people who love things or are passionate about things? No, right? We, I think we tend to celebrate it. Like when somebody's passionate about their career or passionate about, I don't know, a hobby or something, as long as the hobby itself, the thing itself isn't ridicule worthy, then this is something we admire, we respect when people are passionate about things, when people care about things. 
So I think on this, just on the surface, this is like a bogus point. I don't think people do actually do this. Oh, look, this guy loves uh, this guy loves reading so much. What a loser! This guy loves collecting fossils so much. What an absolute loser! Like this is more of a schoolyard bully type thing as opposed to a general phenomenon that obtains in society writ large. So yeah, I think the basic sentiment here is totally bogus and Chris ought to have realized that because a moment's reflection really disabuses you, I think, of that idea. But we have another reason to call bullshit, which is that there is actually a perfectly good explanation for why people take the piss out of rationalism or more accurately, out of the specific group of rationalist people that the author, I think, is referring to. And so I'll try to give you a bit of a flavor for why that might be. So Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's the author of the book and the quote that Chris was citing there, is also the founder of a website called Less Wrong, which is a website that's sort of community-based in which authors contribute articles and there's discussions about the articles and the founding principle of this website is basically rationalism trying to find the truth of reality by using rationalist methods and i've read a bunch of articles on that website over the years they vary in quality you know it's, it's obviously a crowdsourced thing so a lot i've read a lot of good articles i have to say i've read some silly ones too but I think one of the main reasons this community has made themselves targets of ridicule is for a couple of controversies on the website, one in particular that comes to mind. So there was this infamous case of what's called Rocco's Basilisk. So this was like a thought experiment that the community came up with, somebody came up with it, and then it proceeded to create pandemonium and just widespread fear, I think, on the community. And basically the thought experiment uses rigorous logic to show that in the future AI research is going to yield or produce a super intelligence this is Rocco's basilisk which is going to punish or torture anybody who knew about its possible existence in other words who knew about this thought experiment but who didn't help to bring it into existence so there's an impressively convoluted logical argument behind this and a lot of people seemed to have been convinced by it. I think even Eliezer, the founder of the site himself, banned all discussion of the thought experiment for a period. And that seemed to be because he viewed the thought experiment as a, quote, information hazard. So information that could actually be dangerous if it was to be disseminated. So regardless of how impressive or difficult to knock down that argument might happen to be, you can certainly understand why this community has been the subject of a bit of mockery and piss-takery. Or maybe it is just because they love rationalism so much. Who knows? Okay, a second example of Chris having picked up a, uh, in this case, a psychological theory, apparently rather uncritically. So I'll play this clip for you. I love this idea that an absurd ideological belief or an extreme ideological belief is a show of fealty to your own side and a threat display to the other, mm -hmm. right? And the more absurd or extreme the belief, the more likely it is that your own side can trust you and that the other side should fear you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That if it's if you have to put reason and sensibility and common decency to one side in order to like, here I am holding my hand in the air for whatever the current thing is. Mm. Your own side sees you as a reliable ally 
and the other side sees you as a formidable foe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess this is an idea that's supposed to be rooted in evolutionary psychology. So there's two parts to it, really. First, holding an extreme or absurd view makes your in-group, your tribe, I guess, trust you more. And by extreme or absurd, I think we're talking about conspiracy theories generally. I'm pretty sure I've heard this as a possible explanation for why conspiracy theories are so rampant today. And the second part is that holding this extreme or absurd view makes outgroups fear you more. Okay, so two separate ideas. I'll address them separately. So the first idea, does holding extreme or absurd views make your tribe trust you more? Is this a plausible idea? Well, okay, so suppose, let's take a concrete example and just test our intuitions here. Suppose we're talking about Republicans versus Democrats. If you're a moderate Republican, say, do you feel more warmly and more trusting towards another moderate Republican who shares your views? Or do you feel more warmly towards somebody on the far right who expresses views that you find, quote, absurd? Because it seems pretty obvious to me that the, the far right person is more of a liability and an embarrassment for your cause and not an asset. And I feel like you would feel more warmly about the person who shares your views. So just intuitively, it doesn't, I don't think it really stacks up. I also did a quick look to see if there was any actual research on this. And I did find one paper from 2022. I'll link that in the show comments, but it did not find in favor of Chris's idea here or the idea that he's picked up. So yeah, empirically it seems wrong and also intuitively it seems wrong. But what about the other half of the the idea here? So the idea that absurd or extreme beliefs are perceived as threatening to other groups. Again, I can think of a few objections to this idea right off the bat. So first of all, just, I mean, just ask yourself, do you perceive flat earth people, for instance, as threatening or quote unquote formidable foes, as Chris suggested? Personally, I don't. I view them as more absurd and kind of amusing. I guess if we're talking about like explicitly violent beliefs, so extreme violent beliefs, that would be obviously threatening straightforwardly. But he's not, Chris is not talking about violent beliefs specifically. He's just talking about extreme absurd beliefs. Okay, so I can think of a few more holes to try to poke in this argument, but you get the idea. Uh, We'll move on to another example just to illustrate how Chris seems to hoover up and apparently accept information without really vetting it. So in this clip, he is going to recall something that Constantine had told him on a previous occasion. And then Constantine basically clarifies that he doesn't actually know it's a fact, but uh, Chris just seems to have picked it up all the same. I was fascinated. He taught me about this in uh, in Austin when we when we were hanging last yeah. time. I thought it was really fascinating. You taught me as well ambient water, ambient, uh, not not refrigerated water. Should avoid drinking cold water. Yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, just that's that's their way. That's how they see it. And mm-hmm. I'm by no means an expert, but generally, uh, ingesting cold things is not good for you. So yeah, that's that was just a little microcosmic illustration of. Chris picking up an idea that turned out not to be very robust. But okay, let's move on to another proclivity that I've noticed Chris has, which is kind of rampant armchair psychologizing. So he frequently offers up his own kind of casual psychological analyses of people's behavior. He kind of diagnoses mental states and diagnoses the human condition a lot of the times, often in very sweeping general terms. 
But many of his ideas here I find totally spurious. I point this out just because he does it quite frequently. And so here's one example. The context is that Constantine has just been ranting about climate change, the climate change issue, and saying that people's behavior has been cult-like. And this is what Chris says in response. Whatever you think about the climate issue in and of itself, our response to it is strange. People are just looking for a cause. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this is why COVID was so captivating on both sides, because it gave us a righteous war to wage. Mm. Uh, and again, when you've got a multiplicity of ways that you can go with your life, the man box has been blown open. Nobody says that you should be this to, for masculinity. Maybe I don't even need to get into a relationship. I can just boss bitch or like incel my way through the next however many decades of my life, do all this sort of stuff. Ah, here's a single vector along which I can move. I'm no longer in an open field. I'm on a set of railway tracks. Mm. I get that he's just like spitballing here. And to his credit, he sometimes announces when he is spitballing, when he's like going to engage in this kind of theorizing about psychology. But here he presents this idea as fact, right? And more egregious in my view is that it's not a very good idea. So let's examine it in a little bit of detail. So according to Chris here, people are overwhelmed by all the complexities, by all the possibilities in life. And so they find comfort and relief in the simplicity of a cause, like the politics of COVID or climate change. You've got a single vector, single dimension. So I would quibble with a lot of this. First of all, are people really overwhelmed by all the possibilities in their lives such that they're like actively seeking simple things to like shelter in? That sounds dubious, but we can grant that it's true just for the sake of argument. Okay, but now the thing to point out is that If you do adopt a cause, like, say, becoming a climate skeptic, that doesn't just magically make all of your other concerns disappear, right? Like, if anything, it just, you just added one more thing to be, like, confused about or to be overwhelmed by. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to be plausible on any level to me here. Okay, one more. This, I think this is somewhat in response also to Constantine talking about climate change. Uh, If this clip sounds like a non sequitur, that's because it seems to be, it is. Like, I have no idea how it's supposed to connect to what they had been discussing, try to work it out, but I I can't really make heads or tails of it. But anyway, here's this clip. Yeah, I understand, man. Like, you know, people feel like they're being left behind. They feel like life is happening to them or happening for other people, and they're not a part of it. And I, I get that. Like, I, you know, fucking, it's disquieting. Life is going on. My friends are moving on. The world is changing and I'm all confused. I am all confused, but mostly just about what Chris actually means here. Again, it's another diagnosis of the human condition. You know, he loves to do this kind of thing. Uh, He's saying, he seems to be saying that people generally, I guess, feel left behind. And that's because for one thing, their friends are all moving on. But obviously this generalization doesn't, encompass the friends themselves who are moving on so it sort of applies to a subset of people namely those people who have friends that are moving on and who are all confused for some reason uh yeah i'm not sure what to do with this really i guess it just captures this mode of conversation that chris often seems to default to where he sort of makes sweeping statements about the human condition often invoking like psychological concepts he's picked up on and like sprinkling in his own intuitions and all too often it seems without like thinking it through at all 
And to be fair, if you're just spitballing in a conversation, that's fine. You know, I'd be interested to see how many of these kind of errors and mistakes I would make if I was interviewing or being interviewed on a podcast that was going to go out to millions of people. But I suppose the main legitimate criticism is of the ideas that he picks up and then frequently reuses without ever really having considered whether they make much sense or not. That is something I would hope that I wouldn't do. Okay, so one more clip from Chris, and then I'll move on to some bonus clips from the Joe Rogan podcast that Constantine went on. So the last time I looked at Chris, which was in the Eric Weinstein episode, I kind of noted how he go, he just goes along with Eric's conspiratorial thinking. But I more or less wrote that off as just him being agreeable to Eric. Like I, I kind of assumed that he didn't really subscribe to any of the, the wackier ideas that Eric was espousing. But he did say, he so in that episode, he said one pretty wacky thing, which was that it's possible that our institutions, the media and government, I guess, might have been deliberately creating a messy information landscape for nefarious reasons. Um, and again, I wrote that off as just him play acting with Eric. But to my surprise, he actually brings up the same point again in this podcast with Constantine and more or less unprompted too. So I thought it was worth bringing up. So here, listen to this clip. Is, is what yogurt? They, they I love yogurt so much yeah. though. Dairy also not great as I understand right, it. I mean, look, I'm not supposed that. to eat red meat and I eat mostly red meat. So, you know, you break the rules sometimes. Yeah. Or, but no, I, I understand what you mean that different, different sort of strokes right. for different folks, but fucking hell, like even if there can be different strokes for different folks, I should be able to find a source that can, t I'm this kind of a person, therefore mm. I can do this kind of a thing. And this is where the, if I was more conspiratorial, I would say that the goal of a messy information landscape is not to convince you of any one narrative, but to convince you that no narrative can be trusted. Mm. And it seems to me that if I was maybe even a nefarious domestic actor wanting to make a sort of nihilistic, fatalistic placid com not compliant but just like surrendered populace mm. well you know the rat electric so it's worth noting that he brings this up in the context of i guess like health and nutrition about like what foods are uh, healthy and i suppose the fact that it's notoriously difficult to get clear about what's good for you and what isn't so is he talking about that as being deliberately done like even if we adopt the conspiratorial mindset for this hypothetical, I don't even think it makes sense within the logic of a conspiratorial worldview, does it? Like why would a messy information landscape make people compliant or as he says, like surrendered? Especially if we're talking about health information, but even just more generally about the political situation, like why, why would it be a good thing to mess up the information landscape? Not really clear, but anyway, we'll move along. So on to some bonus clips here from the Joe Rogan episode. Okay, so this was a recent episode that Joe Rogan did with both of the guys from the Trigonometry podcast. So Constantine Kissin and his partner in crime, Francis Foster. So they talked about a range of different topics and I'll just, I've picked up on a few little clips here, which are kind of worth commenting on. 
Okay, so they bring up this issue of the Canadian trucker protests that happened back in the early stages of COVID. I think I can't remember what what it was about. Maybe they were protesting against lockdowns, or maybe it was against like the need for vaccinations to stay employed in certain sectors. But I've heard Joe bring this point up so many times in different podcasts. I've heard it talked about by a range of different heterodox anti-government kind of figures. So I wanted to just briefly comment on it here. So what happened is that uh, a bunch of the organizers, I think, of this protest had their bank accounts frozen. And to people who sort of against the whole COVID response by the governments, sort of the Joe Rogan, the heterodox crowd, uh, they were appalled by this. They're like, oh my God, you're freezing these people's bank accounts. This is just shocking. And I'm thinking like, okay, these truckers were breaking the law, right? They're blocking roads. I, I, I have a feeling that people would be less shocked if they were just being arrested and put in prison right because you know they are breaking the law and this is sort of what uh what that entails but for some reason freezing the bank account is like way worse even though it's like much milder and i imagine the reason that that was done was because they couldn't actually find the organizers and because this would actually potentially hamstring their attempts to keep these things going so I find that response to be perfectly valid, the freezing of the bank accounts. But listen to this clip because uh, their issue, I think, is not just with that. I've heard them talk about that specific thing elsewhere, but they bring up something else here. So listen to this. What Trudeau, Trudeau, Trudeau did with the trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. We just well, had one of their guys on to talk about it. Not just the truckers, but people who donate to the truckers got their bank accounts closed. Yeah. Well, that is wild. Okay, yeah. So they, they claim that it was not just the organizers, but anybody who donated to the cause. And having looked this up, it doesn't really seem to be substantiated. I think at worst, it looks like maybe one person who donated had their bank account frozen, which if true would be, you know, obviously a bad thing. We, we certainly don't want that to happen. But I think there can be significant doubt cast on even that being the case i forget the details but uh, basically there's no real solid evidence i think there's a claim made by one politician who said that one of their constituents reached out to say that this had happened to them and i think that's about it certainly it wasn't something that was happening in a systematic way they weren't they weren't freezing all of the donors bank accounts because you know i I think if we just do a sanity check here because the canadian government isn't actually tyrannical and tend to try to enforce the law judiciously so yeah that's i just thought i'd comment on that because i often hear it popping up and just my main point there is that you know when people express how shocked and appalled they are about bank accounts being frozen it's like they they don't seem to consider the fact that laws were being broken here and that this was actually a much more moderate response than actually imprisoning them which i feel like they wouldn't have kicked up a fuss about so yeah just wanted to comment on that we've got a few more silly joe rogan takes here sorry to clown on joe rogan a little bit but he in this podcast brings up some ideas which I've heard him express elsewhere and I couldn't resist giving a little bit of a critique of some of these ideas. Okay, so here's this idea that Joe Rogan just brings up all the time. It's this electronic caterpillar idea which might be familiar to you if you ever tune in to Joe Rogan. So I'll let him spell it out here. I'll actually play two clips. This is, I'll play one from the Constantine podcast and then another one from a different podcast to show you that he is uh, often harping on about this idea. You'd see though, you'd see if you were really objective, like what does this species do? 
they mm-hmm. make better things. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what they do. Mm-hmm. They're like even in Star Wars, they never made anything better. Go back to like fucking Luke Skywalker, like mm-hmm. the first movie, Star Wars, and then to the last movie. They basically have the same weapons. Yeah, same fucking light speed capabilities, yeah. same problems with their spaceships. They didn't get any better. Mm-hmm. We get better constantly. Yeah. We're we're constantly obsessed with innovation. Mm-hmm. And if you just looked at the species as a whole, like, what is it doing? It's making better stuff. Yeah. And even the things that are weird about it, like uh, like uh, this desire for material possessions. Well, one of the things that does is it facilitates consumerism. Can, it facilitates people buying things. And that facilitates innovation. you got to sell more things to people. Mm. i got to get you to buy a new TV. You already have a TV. i got a better TV. Mm. And this is constant. Whether it's computers or cars or whatever it is that we make, everything's better. I think, and when you combine that with this new emergence of AI, we're looking at an, another life form. We're, yeah. we're like building another life form. We're going to build an artificial life form that's way superior to us. We're the electronic caterpillar that is building the cocoon. The way I would look at it is like there's obviously a progression going on, a biological progression. There's some sort of an integration with technology. There's some sort of imperative, this need for technological innovation. It's mm-hmm. inescapable. Everyone has it. We, and I think it's attached to materialism in some sort of a strange way because so many people work so hard to get new things. And like, God, that seems so illogical and preposterous and it makes people unhappy and depression's on the rise, but nobody seems to be able to stop it. Like, why is that? Well, maybe... It's because we are the electronic caterpillars that give birth to the butterfly. Maybe that's what we're doing. That Maybe could very well be. What our job is to do is to make some sort of a cocoon. We don't even know we're doing it while we're doing it. Do you think a caterpillar is aware? Like, hey, caterpillar, what are you doing? Man, just, I'm doing my thing. It's my job. I have to make a cocoon. Then I'm going to become like a butterfly. This could be a natural part of evolution. It could be. That we're right. just supposed right. to do this. Exactly. And- it's kind of interesting just to get a sense of Joe Rogan's views here because he, I've heard him, like, he's had so many evolutionary biologists on and so many guests who are just biologists and the you know he's talked about evolution so many times but yet he's making this fairly basic error i think when thinking about evolution so he has what is called in philosophy a teleological view of evolution so it's this idea that things that creatures species are evolving towards something there's like an end state that's sort of an attractor state that that, that uh, evolution is kind of deliberately evolving things towards so specifically, he has this idea that humanity is evolving towards the state in which they produce a, an advance like AI or something that they, they give birth to. If you think about it, this is a pretty spooky idea, right? It kind of means that, uh, I mean, how would this kind of te- teleological thing be written into the universe? It's, it's, it implies some kind of creator, some kind of intelligent design of the universe, I think or at least an intelligent designer of the evolutionary process. So it requires you to have this fairly spooky view, but you know maybe, maybe he would be happy to avow that. The other thing to point out is that this implies a mechanism which is completely at odds with the mechanisms of natural selection as we understand them. So we have a pretty good idea of how natural selection works at the level of genes and at the level of populations. And if you try to add in this ingredient of like teleology of of working towards something, it doesn't really jibe. So 
I don't know. I, I have actually seen there are some more sophisticated takes on this idea. Generally, they will be from people who are Christians or at least have this kind of Christian sensibility in which they want there to be a, a, an intelligent designer. So, yeah, I just wonder if Joe Rogan is aware of all these implications. It's quite possible he isn't, but I've heard him bring it up so many times and nobody ever pushes back, even sort of scientist types. They don't point out the logical implications of, of the view. Uh, it would be interesting to see if Joe would continue to hang on to this idea if he'd fully explored it. Okay, so I've got another clip of Joe here. And so here they're talking about aliens and Joe is going to wonder whether aliens have reached some level of evolution whereby they've managed to overcome any violent or self-destructive impulses that they might have. And he's going to wonder whether humans are on that evolutionary path towards some form of enlightened, peaceful state and whether the recent apparent feminization of men is part of that process. Right. Maybe they've engineered that out. Maybe yeah. that's part of the feminization of, of males. Maybe that's part <laughs> of the... For real. That's, maybe that's part of all this like, gender chaos. Maybe that's part of the microplastics that are endocrine disruptors that are fucking pesticides and all sorts of other things that are fucking with people's reproductive systems. Maybe it's like a natural, gradual change that the species must take in order to evolve to the next stage, that it has to like sacrifice its lust and anger and fury and all these chimpanzee instincts that are really associated with dominant male hormones. Mm -hmm. And, and primate behavior that we, we see in the jungle. Okay, so this is more teleological thinking. So there's the idea that humans are being pulled towards some end state by evolutionary processes, however that is supposed to work. So this notion that men are becoming more feminine, I don't know whether that has any basis in reality, but if it does, it's certainly a social phenomenon rather than an evolutionary phenomenon. So what Joe's hypothesis here entails is that the social phenomenon is part of a deliberate evolutionary mechanism to evolve humans to this state that he's talking about. And not only is there this social phenomenon contributing to it, but he's talking about the microplastics, which apparently have some sort of effect on the male reproductive system. So he's wondering if this as well is part of some deliberate plan, some deliberate process. So again, I'm not sure whether this reveals a profound misunderstanding of natural selection on Joe's part, or whether in fact he does hold some fairly spooky teleological ideas about how evolution works. It would be interesting to pick his brain there. You know, it's perfectly possible that he's actually thought all this through and is committed to a kind of divine worldview in which some form of god or intelligent designer has set everything up such that humans are on this evolutionary pathway. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Okay, here's another clip of Joe saying something kind of silly when he's talking to the trigonometry guys. I think they're on a, an anti-institution buzz here. So listen to this clip. The way Yeonmi Park describes North Korea is actually the way North Korea is right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So don't think that that can't happen here. Don't think that can... They're regulating podcasts in Canada. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know it was yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's Joe likening what's happening in North Korea to the regulation of podcasts in Canada. I think, so that's absurd, obviously. I think the reality of the regulation is something like 
Canada is requiring or looking to re- to require streaming services, so podcast streaming platforms in Canada to have a certain amount of like Canadian content or something like that. So, I mean, it's hardly Big Brother. They kind of talk about it in more sinister terms in this podcast. But yeah, I, 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 you can you can disagree with it for sure. But like to present it as one step towards North Korea is obviously completely outrageous. Okay, so I've got one more clip here. This is uh, Joe Rogan being Joe Rogan. So he is talking about this robot, this Eater robot, E-A-T-R, that I think was being developed but no longer is, which he claims uh, is designed to eat bodies on a battlefield so that it can sort of sustain itself. But the reality is, and I'll, I'll tell you this up front so you can just listen to him as he talks about it in this clip. The reality is there was the development of this robot that had the ability to eat sort of plant matter, I think, specifically so that it could burn it, right, and generate energy from this. So so combusting some kind of fuel to generate energy. And this would have to be something that's dry and woody, probably. So like dried vegetation. And it's going to be a fairly basic energy production system, I imagine, Whereas what Joe is imagining is going on is that it was designed to consume bodies. Bodies cannot be burned in this way, I don't think, at least not easily. So the view is this kind of dystopian future type view of killer robots eating bodies. It's a compelling image. It's sufficiently sort of frightening and futuristic that you can see why Joe's kind of so excited about it. But the reality is it's it's a far more mundane thing that just burns plant fuel and i don't think is even still in development so here's this clip you yeah. know what the eater robot is you ever heard of that no the eater robot is uh, i think this is a darpa program as well they've developed a robot that is fueled by biological fuel like biological waste like bodies like you could use it on a battlefield and it can consume bodies what yeah it consumes things for fuel yeah, it can consume plants, I think, too. But the implication is, when they said biological, I was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. When you say biological, I don't think plants. I think, like, human beings, like dead bodies on a battlefield. Like, if you have a robot that kills people and eats them, and that's what how it fuels itself, you don't need to charge it. It just goes on whatever energy it extracts from consuming flesh. Okay, so we are going to wrap things up there. So we have covered Constantine Kisson, Chris Williamson, and then a little bit of uh, bonus content for you at the end there. So what did we discover about Constantine Kisson? He's a bit of a heterodox character, notwithstanding what he claims, which is that he's an enlightened centrist. He's very much on board with being anti-establishment. He's against the media, the mainstream media. He's against the government in many ways. Very critical, I should say, of all these things. He speaks in kind of broad and sweeping and low-resolution terms about all these things to essentially paint a picture that they are sinister or incompetent or, what did he say, captured or perverted or what have you. So he's got this significant anti-institution bent to him very much in line with what we would expect from somebody that has a right-wing podcast that rails against things like wokeism and that has gradually cultivated, I think, an audience which is receptive to all these ideas. I've also noticed in Constantine the tendency to 
kind of shift his view depending on what is rhetorically convenient. So this is something you should look out for when you listen to Constantine. Actually, I'll play one more clip as well because this lets me end on a positive note respecting Constantine. So this is from the podcast, the discussion that he hosted between Eric Weinstein and Sam Harris. And this is him kind of trying to keep Eric in line. So Eric has this tendency to like use overly technical jargon that nobody really understands. And so I was happy to see Constantine kind of calling him out for that here. So here's this little clip. Oh, this is like, you know, eight lines of code that every time you run them it's produce the, the same amount. It's not the fact it's the clearest piece of code, Sam. It's the fact that it has no repressor bound to it, to borrow a metaphor but, from DNA. Okay, but and so in, the, in Deuteronomy, we have repressor yes, bound to yeah, bad code, it, so the code doesn't run. The problem is, is that all the safeties are off the gun. You've got promoter rather than repressor for some collection of people. For some other collection... Eric, explain wait, that sorry. in a different way. Sure. It's too complicated. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated for you but it's too complicated for me to understand and therefore for a lot of people watching. So explain it simpler. Okay, and Chris Williamson too, we covered. So a couple of observations about Chris Williamson. One is that he absorbs ideas. He's got a prodigious memory for kind of theories and terms and quotes from people. So you'll notice him frequently referring to somebody's idea. And to his credit, he doesn't claim them as his own generally, I don't think. The problem is that he is far too eager to pick these ideas up and regurgitate them uncritically. So as we saw, some of these ideas were fairly weak and there are more examples you'll find in his podcast. Second observation is that he frequently likes to engage in this kind of armchair psychologizing. And I don't know, sometimes maybe it's good. I, the, the examples that I've seen have left a lot to be desired. But, you know, hardly a scathing indictment of the guy. And so, yeah, I might in the future do an episode solely on Chris and see if we can confirm whether these this pattern holds up. It does seem to be the case from what I've seen. But yeah, I hope you found something to enjoy in this episode and I'll see you again next time. <laughs>